0: So, um, this is uh, like a ridiculously uh, um, epic, overwhelmingly uh, dense story of the Bible, and there's just too much material here. So we're going to go fairly fast, and we're just going to head to highlights. This is really this idea that Christ is king is the storyline of the Bible. You can summarize the entire story of the Bible. You can t- summarize the entire theme and, and the gospel, and it could be completely articulated as... Christ as king. Okay, And so before we jump into uh, kingship, I just want to first kind of trace this idea of kingship through biblical history. And so let's look at the first passage. And the question is, where, when does this uh, idea of kingship first emerge? All right, when, when, uh, when does it first come up in the Bible? And then the passage here is 1 Samuel. So Yvonne, can you read it? <laughs>
1: The elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all nations.
0: Yeah, so this is when the people ask, the first time that they ask for a king. By the way, who is this first king? Who knows? Saul. Saul, right. So he would be a little bit before uh, David. So what passage is this? First Samuel chapter 8. Right? This is the first time that... Uh, uh, Israel asks for a king and actually asks for it in sin because they they're, they're really rejecting God as king. But I want to show you that uh, this, I, this, uh, the kingship did not just arise out of the sort of present situation of Israel's sort of like geopolitical situation, but that it was always anticipated. It was always intended. And so let's go back in biblical history to Deuteronomy chapter 17. This is the uh, Mosaic covenant. Go, uh, Moses had always made provisions for this. We're going to read the whole passage, even though it's a little bit long, because I think it helps us to see who this king of Israel is always supposed to be. So Neiman.
1: When you come to the land that the Lord your God has given you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself, or cause the people to return to Egypt, in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, He shall never return that way again, and he shall not acquire many wives for himself, unless his heart say, Let his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be in, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of his law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Okay, so um,
0: you probably weren't even listening. <laughs> this was being read because it was a distraction. But um, let me just summarize it for you. Um, there's a very lengthy description of who this king of Israel is supposed to be. So it's not just emerging um, with King Saul in this sort of emergency situation where Israel's fighting uh, the Philistines, but that uh, uh, Moses outlines the attributes of the king. He's supposed to be among the Israelites. He's supposed to not live extravagantly but humbly, right? So he's not exploiting the people. He's not um, um, using the people, but he's supposed to serve the people. And then he's also supposed to be godly and righteous, right? He's supposed to keep a book of the law. He's never supposed to mm-hmm. send Israel back into Egypt in slavery. He's supposed to lead people in righteousness and godliness, right? And that was always the image. And so the, the, king, the idea of kingship um, was always from the beginning a very different model from pagans in which kings used the people, but the king is supposed to serve by protecting and leading the people, right? But even... So does, is this when the first time that this idea of kingship first emerges, in the Mosaic Covenant. No, it goes even further back than that. And so let's go to Genesis forty-nine. This is the passage where, at the end of Genesis, Jacob blesses all of his sons, right? And um, Jeff, can you read uh, Genesis forty-nine? Genesis. This
2: the scepter shall. Oh, by
0: the way, what's a scepter? Who knows what a scepter is? It's a rod, it's a rod okay? But so it's just a rod. Well,
1: it's like a ruling. rod. Yes, it's a ruling <laughs> rod, right.
0: It's like, you know, if this, is the, if this is the king, right? I don't know what kings wear. There you go. He has this rod, right? And it's like a rod of authority, a rod of power. So that's what a scepter. Only kings have scepters. If you're walking around with a scepter, you know, you're saying something. <laughs> you
2: know?
0: All right. Um, go ahead. Uh, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Yeah, so Jacob says that even all the way back, and so what what passage is Genesis 49? A little after um, the time of Abraham. Jacob says that uh, part of uh, of the storyline of what's going on with the patriarchs is that uh, Judah, who's the fourth son of Jacob, was out of his line is supposed to come king's, right? And so this anticipates what's going on in the Mosaic Covenant, what's anticipate going on in the... Um, Tim, can you run and make sure they close the door? Um, uh, and then this is actually fulfillment of Genesis 17. So let's... Where are we, Dan? Can you read Genesis 17? This is the Abrahamic Covenant. God promises to Abraham. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. Yeah. You know, I remember as, as a young person, I used to read that. I thought, oh, you know, if peoples come from uh, Abraham, then of course it's natural that a king would also come. But a king is specifically specified. Um, and so that's very inherent to the Abrahamic covenant is that there will be kings coming out of Abraham. <clears throat> right? So that from within Abraham's lineage, there'll be kingship, right? Um, and let me just go re- really quickly back to um, Genesis 49, where it talks about Judah. And it says that at the very end, Genesis forty-nine ten, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Notice that it's in plural. So it's not just that this king, this, uh, this uh, Judah king is not just going to rule over Israel, but he's going to rule over many, many people. And so right there, you have a little bit of hint, a tantalizing hint of the cosmic rule of the king, right? Does that make sense? Notice that as you go back in redemptive history, the scope of kingship becomes bigger and bigger and bigger, right? Because initially, it's an emergency situation. Israel is under attack by the Philistines, so they said, give us a king. And then if you go back to the Mosaic covenant, you see that it was, it was always intended, this king, servant king. And then if you go back to the time of the patriarchs, you realize that actually it's this king, in fulfillment of the promises to Abraham, who's going to have this sort of cosmic rule. The idea of kingship goes even further back than that. And notice that as it goes back, the scope widens. All right? So let's go to Genesis chapter 1, and uh, uh, I want to show you that this idea of kingship is embedded within the very fabric of creation itself, that it was always intended right from the start, right from the very beginning there was supposed to be a king uh, Genesis chapter um, 1 uh, uh, Ashley can you read
1: then God said let us make man in our image after our likeness and then let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth so God created man in his own image in the image of God he created him
0: male and female he created them And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion
1: over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on
0: the earth. Yeah, if you look at the bold, right? The language here is kingship language. Man is supposed to have dominion. Man is supposed to subdue creation. Man is supposed to have dominion over creation. And the reason, the theology behind this is that man is... In the image of God. And so the way this works is, here's God. And he is the ultimate king, right? And in God, man is made in the image of God, right?
2: <clears throat>
0: and to image God is to image precisely his kingship. Right? That God had intended man to exercise this sort of kingly role. That was that was the commission given to Adam, and so he exercised it by having dominion over creation. And so, um, let me draw. <laughs> uh, maybe this is a, a snake. This is a giraffe or a <laughs> dinosaur. I don't know. Giraffe. It's a, it's a giraffe. Um, this is uh, maybe this is a fish. There you go. Yeah. And then this is a, a snake. So. Um, Mirror creation, in case people don't understand. Um, man is to image God, image his kingliness by having a kingly doma- dominion, kingly rule over <clears throat> all of creation. Does that make sense? Um, and therefore, right, the story of the garden, the story of Genesis, is that Adam was supposed to rule over creation, including the serpent. And when the serpent um, whispered those treacherous thoughts to Adam, right when he suggested rebellion against God, the ultimate king, what was man's role as king? He was supposed to exercise dominion. By what? By expelling the serpent from the garden, by rendering judgment upon the serpent, but man fails. And so Adam becomes the world's first failed king. And what actually happens is this terrible reversal, this tragic um, uh, reversal of, of the situation because what happens is man, instead of listening to God, imaging God, he ends up listening to the serpent and the serpent becomes, in effect, the usurper king, right? And that's the story. And so the serpent becomes the usurper king. So Satan... becomes a usurper king, and, in effect, man becomes subjugated as the failed king. Okay? This is the story of the Bible, okay? And so, if I could sort of graphically represent it, here's Adam. He failed as king. And then, here's, here's uh, Satan. Satan. He is a usurper king. This idea that Satan is king now instead of man is all throughout the Bible. For example, um, Jesus says in John 14:30, he calls Satan the ruler of the world. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2 verse two, um, uh, Paul calls Satan the prince of the power of the air. Um, it's just on and on and on. We can list a dozen different passages that call Satan the ruler, the fake ruler, the false king of this world because Adam failed as king. Because Adam subjugated himself to Satan. And therefore, what is the gospel? The gospel is the hope that God would send a second Adam. And what would the second Adam do? He would, he would rule... In the way that the first Adam failed to do, he would become king. And he would truly reign. That's the story. This, right here. This is the story of the Bible. Okay, and we're going to unpack that. Um, Any questions? So far. Does this make sense? The storyline? I never thought of it that way. All right, good. There's more. Um, <clears throat> all right, so Genesis 1. Now, some of you are saying, okay, wow, you're getting a lot out of Genesis 1, right? I mean, I never saw this image of God, this kingship. Um, this, this, the, 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 first of all, the language <laughs> de- deliberately evokes kingship language, but we know that this is the correct interpretation because if you go to Psalm 8, Psalm 8 is pivotal. It's, it's like the hinge upon which everything hangs Because Psalm 8 explains Genesis chapter 1. And Psalm 8 is frequently quoted in the New Testament, so you know that this is an incredibly important passage to understanding the storyline of the Bible. And Psalm 8 is really a commentary on Genesis chapter 1. And So let's read Psalm 8. Harry, can you read it for us? What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him, that you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor? You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. Yeah, so what Psalm, is, Psalm 8 is saying, and stay on, don't flip the page, Psalm, what Psalm 8 is saying is that uh, even though man is the failed king and he's, he's a broken image, nevertheless he still images God because he still, uh, uh, he still has this sort of faint kingly role right? And he exercises that kingly role, right? How? In verse 6, he's been given dominion over all the works of creation. Verse 7, over all the sheep, oxen, beasts of the field, birds of the heavens, fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. What does, that, what does that sound like? Does this not sound like Genesis chapter 1? It's echoing Genesis one twenty-eight. Genesis one twenty-eight, by the way, I'm reading this massive book. By G.K. Bill, called uh, a bi- uh, biblical theology of the New Testament. He says, I hundred percent agree with him. He says Genesis one twenty-eight <clears throat> is the epic verse of the Bible. It's the theme verse. It should be memorized by every single human, every every single Christian, because it is repeated all throughout. It is the most quoted or alluded to verse in the entire Bible. Right? Let me let me go back to Genesis one twenty because it's so epic. I want it to be emblazed in your mind because we're going to see echoes of it throughout um, the lesson today. Right, Genesis one twenty eight. God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is kingship language, right? Notice that if you go back to Psalm 8 in verse 5, <coughs> it says you have crowned him with glory and honor, right? Man is to be king. He was supposed to be king. That was always intended. And notice that there's a new, new phrase there that we didn't see in Genesis chapter 1. Uh second half of verse 6, it says, You have put all things under his feet. Um that's an expression, right? <clears throat> so if here's man, right? And here's creation. Right? And this is this is the way it was supposed to be in Genesis 128, and here's his feet. <laughs> <laughs> creation it's supposed to be under his feet. Does that make sense? And um, that, is a, that is an echo. That's a commentary, again, on Genesis one twenty-eight. And this is incredibly important because it's... That verse, I don't know if you guys recognize it. You have put all things under his feet. It's quoted again and again and again throughout the New Testament. We're going to go back to it, okay? Um, and so it's an expression, like, you know, if you have something... Like, if I put Harry under my foot... And you guys saw a picture. Like you don't know anything else. You just came into a room and you saw me on, with my foot on Harry. What would you say? Would you say Harry's the master and Michael is the servant? No. So
2: and the servant king.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no. You would say what? Michael yes. is exercising dominion <laughs> over Harry because so to put something under your foot is a expression, idiomatic expression that you are in, you are in charge and the thing under your foot is subordinate, is a subject under you. Does that make sense? And so that was the way it was supposed to be. Man is supposed to put creation under his foot. Okay? Um, And so what this tells us, therefore, right, um, is that Psalm 8 cannot be talking about simply man because it's just, it's not happening. And so ultimately, who is Psalm 8 talking about? It's talking about Jesus. That one day Jesus will come as the second Adam and he will truly, he will truly do what Psalm 8 is talking about. And this is the storyline of the Bible. Now, let's go to the next section. Next session. No mere king, Israel's cosmic king. Now, let's go back to the to Israel's king, right? Saul is the first king. <laughs> and if you understand Genesis 1, you understand that... Israel's king is always evoking or, or being informed by Genesis chapter 1. So that, that's the background of Israel's king. This is why Israel's, Israel's king is not just a king over a geopolitical state called Israel. He's not just a king over this tiny ethnic group called the Jews. But there was always a cosmic scope to Israel's king, alright? So let's look at um next passage, Second Samuel chapter 7. This is what God says to King David. It's called the Davidic covenant. Harry, Heri- Oh no, I already had it. David, um, can you read starting in verse 12?
1: Yes, verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish a throne to of his kingdom
0: forever. Okay, okay. Let me stop right there, right? So, if you just look at that language, right? I mean... You know, people say, oh, you know, your kingdom will be forever. You know, it's kind of like uh, flowery language that you describe all kings. But when God says it, it's almost over the top, right? Because what does he say? He says, the specific son, right? The son of David, this offspring of David, in bold, he says, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And so this Davidic king, this king of Israel is supposed to be an everlasting king. And if you think about that, every human being dies. And so the, the, the cosmic transcendent description of this Davidic king, it just far surpasses any human equivalent. This is no mere king. This is, this is, this is a cosmic king, okay? I'll uh, keep going.
2: <clears throat>
0: oh, 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 and the reason why I, I wrote this down is because if you go back to Genesis 1, what is in Genesis 1, right? If, if Adam had fulfilled his kingly role, what would have happened? That was a tree of life, right? And what happens if you eat the tree of life? Eternal life.
1: Banished in the Garden of Eden, right? Um,
0: you're thinking about the tree of the knowledge of good oh. and evil, right? So that's the other tree. But there's another tree, a good tree, a tree of the life. And that was the reward for Adam had he exercised his kingly role. So he would have been king forever. And then, so this is what God is saying. God's saying, I'm going to establish the second Adam, this son of David... Who will reign forever and ever? Okay, let's keep going. Uh, verse 14, David M. Okay. I will be to him a father, and he
1: shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever.
0: Okay. I just want to pause briefly on this point, simply because um, we're going to talk about it next week as well. But notice that this Davidic, this son of David, this future king, has a a unique designation in that God is going to be a father to him, right? So he's going to be the son of God. And we often think of son of God as a divine title, as an expression of Jesus' divinity. But actually, if you look at throughout the gospel accounts, son of God is always thought of as a kingly title. It's not so much that he's divine, but that he is king, right? So when people say, "Oh, you are the son of God," um, they're talking about him being um, a king, right? And again, look at the bold: "And your house and your kingdom shall be shall be made sure forever. You'll be, your throne will be established forever." Again, over the top language. Let's go on to Daniel chapter two. Daniel two is the passage. So now we're t- now Daniel two is here, right? The exile. Right. So as we move forward now, right? We also the, the, the scope of kingship becomes bigger. Um, Daniel two. Daniel is talking to who? Who who is this king who has this dream? Does anyone know a Babylonian king? His name is Justin. Can we make sure the door is closed? Huh? Who's
2: Nebuchadnezzar.
0: Nebuchadnezzar? That's right. Nebuchadnezzar is the emperor of Babylon, the greatest kingdom at that time. And he has this dream and so let's read Daniel to Rory. Tommy, can you read that for
2: us? You saw, O king, and behold a great image. This image mighty and of exceeding brightness stood before you and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand. And it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces then the iron the clay the bronze the silver and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found but the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth the god of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed nor shall the kingdom be left to another people it shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever.
0: All right. So, this image, da, uh, Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel interprets it. Nebuchadnezzar sees this amazing statue made up of multiple, um, multiple uh, what is it? Elements, and this is this represents the kingdoms of the world, right? Okay, and then he says. I saw a stone uncut by human hands, meaning it's a di- of divine origin. And this stone smashes the statue, pulverizing it into dust. And then, the, and then what does Daniel say? Daniel says, right, um, verse 44, he will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, right, it shall stand forever. What is he talking about? He's talking about the Davidic king. This stone is the king of David, right? I am mean, not king of David, uh, uh, the son of David, the, the future king, the second Adam. But then notice this new element that it strikes this uh, statue and it pulverizes it, which introduces a new element, which is what? There's going to be a cosmic battle. Okay? And so the only way the, king of David, uh, the, um, the son of David, the, this future king, can come into his kingdom is he has to first destroy the kingdoms of the world. And the reason why is because the kingdoms of the world are really just proxies of Satan, the usurper king. And so the only way, and so what this, what this means is that the only way for the second Adam to come is he must first eliminate Satan as a usurper king, right? For example, Chronicles of Narnia. You guys know the story. Aslan comes as the king. And what must he do? He has to defeat the white witch, right? Um, and then look at verse... Uh, uh, Look at the bold there at the end of the second paragraph, verse 35. It says, But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. What does that remind you of? That that last phrase, it filled the whole earth. What verse that we just saw does that remind you of? Neiman. Genesis
2: 128.
0: Yes! Genesis 128 is the theme verse of the Bible. Everyone should have that verse memorized, right? This kingdom that destroys the world's kingdoms grows and grows and grows and fills the whole earth. What is that a fulfillment of? That's a fulfillment of Genesis 128. Do you see? All right. Uh, Psalm 110. Uh, By the way, Psalm 110, most quoted passage, Old Testament passage in the New Testament, period. Like, by far. Psalm 110 is just echoed throughout the Bible again and again and again. Let's read the whole Psalm. Um...
2: The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day with,
0: of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will
2: lift up his head.
0: All right. We're going we're gonna to park uh, here for a little bit, so don't flip the page. Um, and let's think about what Psalm 110 is saying. First of all, it's that interesting <coughs> expression, the Lord said to my Lord, right? <coughs> so notice that Lord, the first Lord is all caps. Um, and it says to another Lord, lower caps. Um, what's going on here? Does anybody know? Uh, all caps Lord. When you see all caps Lord, what does that mean? Huh? Yahweh, that's, that's very good. It's the covenant name of God. Um, this is called the Tetragrammaton, the four letters. This is the, word, the name of God. We don't know how it's pronounced because the Jews thought it was so holy that they would never say his name. And in fact, it, it was so holy, they would just say Adonai. Wait, what does Adonai mean? Anyone? Lord. right? So they would never say Yahweh. We're not even sure if it's Yahweh. It could be Yehovah, Jehovah. right? Instead of saying Yahweh, they would always say Lord. And so English translators have carried that tradition and they never write the covenant name of God. They always write uh, Lord all caps to let you know that it's speaking about God's covenant name, right? And then the Lord says to my Lord, so in the Hebrew it says, Yahweh says to Adonai. Does that make sense? That's why it looks repetitive. The Lord says to my Lord. It's God says to my Lord. Who is David talking about? Who is David's Lord here? Adonai. Jesus. Yes. He's, well... Yes but he doesn 't know it 's Jesus. he says to his son, by the way, Jesus picks up this verse and he really he, he, he really goes crazy with it because he says to uh, to the Pharisees, How come David calls his son his Lord? David knows that his son is greater than him. How does David know this and and what does that mean about uh, uh, david 's son but so so uh, uh, david is t- is writing a psalm about his future son okay <laughs> This is amazing. All okay. right, and then what does he say?s He says, "Sit at my right hand." What does that mean? Uh, who is whose right hand is this Adonai sitting at? He's sitting at God's right hand, right? What does it mean to sit <laughs> at God's right hand? David, um, are you going to sit at God's right hand?
1: Does that mean like a, you're his prince or like?
0: Yeah, it's a it's a position of honor. It's a posi- yeah. It means king, right? So understand that, okay? And then he says. Until I make your enemies your footstool. Okay, let's pause there. Okay, that's a very important phrase. <clears throat> okay, enemies your footstool. What does this remind you of? You've already seen it. The, this is a quiz. huh? The, was it like
1: when they're under your feet? Yes! Thank you, okay?
0: That's why I put it right here, okay? So the image is this, okay? Here's the king. Okay, this is his big feet. And under his feet is a footstool. And who is going to be this son of David, this Adonai, this future Davidic king? Who will be his footstool? Right before it was creation, which is a very neutral word, right? All animals, right? Um, but now Psalm 110 uh makes it a little bit more specific. He says enemies, enemies will be his footstool, right? Again, if I'm sitting on a chair and Harry's my footstool, you would think Harry must be Michael's vanquished victim. (laughs) We had a epic duel, and I subordinated Harry, right? So, what this tells us is that, again, it's a commentary on Psalm 8, which is a commentary on Genesis 128, and what this is t- telling us is that this future king, right, the second Adam that is supposed to come, is going to make Satan his footstool. Alright? And then you, you guys can skip down, right? He says in verse 2, rule amidst your enemies, right? There's this adversarial element. This king is only going to come into power by smashing the world's kingdoms. The world's kingdoms are the Davidic king's enemies. He's going to smash them and look, look down to verse 6. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses, He he will shatter cheese. Um, Any questions about that? So far. Do you guys understand the storyline? Alright, now you're ready for it all to come together. This is uh, the next (coughs) section. The cosmic rule of of Jesus Christ. This is the highlight of my pastoral ministry so far. This (laughs) moment. To be able to exegete uh, uh, Ephesians chapter 1 for you. It is amazing. I just want to... Soak it in. <laughs> All right. Ephesians chapter 1. I cannot tell you how amazing this, these next several verses are, okay? Because it ties the whole story together. Um, let me read it for you. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20. God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, right? To, to be seated at the right hand of God is a position that only is reserved for the Davidic king. Verse 21, Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. All right, now let me go back to verse 20. It says, why does Jesus get to sit at the right hand of God? Because God raised Christ from the dead. Why does the resurrection, what link does the resurrection have to Christ sitting at God's right hand? Or what link does the resurrection have to Jesus being king, this Davidic future promised king. Why is the resurrection so integral, so important? Anyone? The king doesn't die,
2: huh? The king doesn't die.
0: Yes, you're very, very close. Go back to the death, right? What did the death mean, right? Let me go back to the story of the cross. Okay. When you look at the cross, do you guys remember what was on top of the cross? There was there was a little sign, right? Yeah. What what did the sign say on the cross? This is very important. What did the what did the sign say? Isn't
1: that king of the Jews. Yes,
0: David, um, king of the Jews. Okay. And when they say Jews, what do they mean? <clears throat> the Davidic king, right? Now, when they wrote king of the Jews, let me... When they wrote King of the Jews, how did they mean it, David? It wasn't like a joking manner, though. They meant it ironically. Why did they mean it ironically?
1: Because so they were poking fun at him?
0: Yes, but why?
1: Because they didn't believe him?
0: Yes, but why? <laughs> Anybody Is else?
1: Defeated?
0: Yes! Alright? By the way, this idea of a Jewish Davidic king was extremely well known throughout the Mediterranean world. Because the Jews talked about it all the time. This king is coming. He's gonna put his enemies under his feet. He's gonna <laughs> smash the world's kingdom. The Jews are like, always oh, talking about it. And then the, the Roman soldiers are like, oh yeah? Oh yeah? This Davidic king is... He, oh hell, king of the Jews. Oh hell, the Messiah. We have crucified him. How can he be king if he is defeated how can he be king when he's humiliated he cannot and therefore the cross said the cross was the verdict of the romans you are not the king because no king could be crucified but the resurrection is the reversal of the verdict of the romans the resurrection said to everybody he is king because death is defeated itself right and so let's go on okay verse 21 and when christ is resurrected what happens He's, he's placed above all rule, all authority, power, and dominion. Okay, that phrase is so key. Let me write this down. Um, rule, authority, and power. And then there's a fourth word, dominion. But um, this is the trio of words, okay? This, this trio of words, does anybody know what this signifies? Rule, authority, power. No? Who has a Bible on them? Or who has a smart. Oh, there's a Bible. Harry, look up Ephesians chapter 6. Quick, do it the fastest you, you've ever looked up Ephesians in your life. <laughs> all right, all right.
2: We're
0: okay. read, here. Read to me Ephesians 6, uh, chapter, uh, verse 12. Okay, everyone, listen. This is, this is it. It all comes together. Verse 6. I mean, verse six, 12. Verse 12, okay. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers. Okay, we'll stop there. Against the? Rulers. Rulers. Keep going. Against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. What is rule, authority, power? What is Paul talking about? Anybody? He's talking about satanic rule. He's talking about Satan's role as the usurper king, as the false king of this world, right? And it says uh, 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 that Christ is placed above them. And now we understand, right? The Jews, reading the Old Testament, thought all along that when the Davidic king would put his enemies, they thought he was talking about human enemies. They thought he was talking about the Greeks and the Romans and all of these world's empires, but they didn't realize that they're just proxies. They're just puppets. They're puppets to the real bad guy, the usurper king who is Satan, the rulers, the authorities, and the powers. And so Jesus came not so much to destroy human beings. They're just proxies. He came to defeat Satan. And the only way he could defeat Satan, the only way he could defeat death is by submitting to death by dying on the cross. And that's that's how he did it. He defeated them this way. That's how he defeated Satan, right? Um, And then let's let's read down to, let's keep going in verse 22. Um, And he put all things under his feet. Stop right there. Where's all things under his feet? Which psalm is this? Psalm? No, not 110. There's only two psalms I've cited so far. Psalm 8, that's right. Christ put all things under his feet which is a quotation of Psalm 8, which is a commentary on
2: Genesis.
0: Genesis 128. It's all coming together, right? And he gave him as head over all things the church, to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who, fits, who fills all in all, okay? So this is the story. Adam failed as king. Satan came as the usurper king. Now Jesus Christ is the second Adam, smashes Satan, comes as the future king, and now he gives all things to the church so that Humanity is restored. Right? if you look at Narnia, C.S. Lewis is so biblical. How does he do this? If you look at the end of the, the line to which in Wardrobe, what happens to the four Pebasy children? They're all crowned, right? Because they're all co-rulers with Christ, we're all co-heirs with Christ. And so, because of Adam, because of the second Adam, now we the church are restored back to our rightful position as future rulers of this world. Right? Back in, in, uh, as kings, as human beings, right? In, back in this st- restored image of God. This is the storyline of the Bible. Not only Narnia... Not, I mean, we see this echoed throughout literature. I think because we're so hungering for it. You see that in Narnia? Can I say also, Lord of the Rings, <laughs> right? Um, Aragorn comes as the returning true king, and who does he smash? Sauron, right? You cannot come as the king unless you come to a broken world and you set things right by smashing the evil forces, which is Sauron. I was just reading... Uh, uh, one of Judah's little his children's book The Lion King it's the same story right what is the story of Lion King there's Mufasa he's the true king right but then what happens Uncle Scar he's the evil king he's the usurper king right he kills Mufasa he comes in as the fake king but what happens Simba comes Simba's the true king he's actually in the image of his father Lion King. I don't know how Disney, like, <laughs> evoked the gospel here. He comes in, in the image of the Father, and he defeats Uncle Scar, and then he restores the, the, the animal kingdom back to a righteous, holy place, right? That's the story. First Peter uh, 3, it's the exact same thing. Let me just read to you verse 22. Uh, and Christ who is at the right hand of God. Again, image of kingship. With angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. 1 Corinthians 15. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Again, this link of kingship and resurrection. Very key. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And then we're going to skip down to verse 24. But then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom of God, the kingdom to God the Father, after, listen, destroying, he must destroy... That's the only way Christ can come as king. After destroying every rule and every authority and power. There's a trio of words again. Rule, authority, power, satanic forces, okay? For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Where, where, what is that a quotation of? All his enemies under his feet. It's actually a conflation of Psalm 8 and Psalm 110, right? Because Psalm 110 is enemies made your footstool. And then all things under your feet. So it's all things under his feet, right? And then verse 26. This is amazing. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. And now we understand. Satan is <clears> death. <throat> and the only way Christ, the, the way that Christ came to destroy death and now it all makes sense because if you go to genesis 3:15, right? What is the prophecy? What's the promise to Adam and Eve in genesis 3:15? God says, "I will put enmity, right? There's that that battle language, that adversarial language, right? I will put enmity. There will be a battle between you and the woman, he's speaking to the serpent, between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel." How does a human being bruise a serpent's head? What action does that entail? I I right? <laughs> what? Do you understand? That, what, that Genesis 3.15 is saying the seed of the woman will come and he will put his foot on Satan. And that's the story. That's the gospel. He's going to destroy the usurper king and come back and establish a right wall with the church now as co-heirs with Christ. That's the gospel story this is this is the climax it's all downhill from here (laughs) (laughs) any questions or any comments any points of clarification the the kingdoms of this world are all proxies of Satan so that means like America is or any country in this world (laughs) is working under Satan they're um If you look at the New Testament, right, it has a very dim view of empires. Because empires are not at all the kind of humble servant kingship that we see. They're coercive, they use people, they coerce people, they abuse, exploit people. And so when we see the evil in this world, how do we explain the evil? A lot of it is just people grabbing power. A lot of it is just greed and, and exercises of power. And so Christ comes to destroy all of that. But uh, is the American Empire one of these empires? Well, you know, actually we're going to talk about that next week a little bit, which is the relationship between church and politics. But um, I think uh, the the, the most crystal clear way to think of it is the Roman Empire, you know, which was an evil, oppressive (coughs) empire. But yet, did Jesus actually wipe out the Roman Empire? He didn't. Yeah, because the real, the real evil behind the Roman Empire was always Satan. <coughs> and so, this is true. When we see war, nations fighting one another, when we see um, people being greedy, exploiting, when we see uh, human trafficking, when we see slavery, um, all of this is Satan at work. Satan as the prince of the air, prince of this world, ruling, controlling humanity. So that humanity, right here, right? Man was supposed to be king over Satan, but Satan makes man a slave. That's why the story of the Bible, right? God has to redeem his people out of Egypt, bring them out of slavery. That word redemption means purchase from bondage. That's the story of salvation, that we're slaves under Satan. We don't even know it. I don't know if that I I, I went way off, but if that answered your question. So is the American Empire one of these kingdoms? Yes and no. Yes and no. <laughs>
1: Because doesn't Paul also tell us that any authority and power is only there because they're there by God? so it's a very complex understanding. On
0: the one hand, the Roman Empire is rightfully placed there by God to to keep the peace. But the Bible also talks about the Roman Empire as one of the kingdoms of the world that Christ has come to smash. I don't know if you guys know this, but uh, there's this emperor named Augustus. And Augustus called himself the son of God because he was the son of Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar was declared a god. And so all on the coinage of all the coins in the Roman Empire was Augustus, son of God. And when Jesus, you know when the, when the, when the Pharisee says, should we pay taxes? Jesus says, can I see a coin? On the coin said, Caesar, son of God. And so and there's just like so much like interplay of the whole Bible story, but also the question of politics. So in essence, we're not here to smash the American Empire. Uh, don't go, you know, and, uh, and occupy Oakland and, and cause civic <laughs> havoc. Uh, but, we're, but Christ has come to destroy the evil underneath it all. Yeah. So I, don't, I, I forgot what even your question, I just went like crazy. All right, let me close in prayer. Um, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the story of the gospel that Christ has come as king. And uh, what an amazing story uh, there's so much more to be said, so much more to be filled out. I pray that this would give us a, a deep hunger to know you, to read the Bible, to see the story behind the story, to see the great story arc that Satan is defeated. And even now, he will be defeated. Even now, his kingdom is collapsing. Um, and Lord, we look forward to the future kingdom when you will reign forever and ever, and all will be restored. Shalom, righteousness, peace. We pray this in Christ's name.